Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. So, over the past year, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests and the growing recognition that America is systematically racist, there have been calls to enact anti-racist policies. The notion is relatively simple, right? That being not racist is insufficient, that we need to actively work to dismantle racism. And this is particularly true for the white majority, right? Just to say, hey, I'm not racist. I didn't, you know, it wasn't me who did all that horrible stuff to you all, you know, back in the day. That's an insufficient response, that white people are beneficiaries of the racist system and that we need to actively dismantle it. This framing has been popularized by Ibram Kendi, who has come under a lot of criticism from some other black activists, notably John McWhorter at Columbia University, saying that he's kind of tried to create some kind of religion and that he's kind of missing the mark and he's not focused on the key policies that really would benefit black and brown people. I want to say that Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is actually pretty poorly written and poorly reasoned. It does include some good stuff. And, you know, again, I think the thesis is correct. But I think the criticism that it doesn't include, you know, a lot of significant actionable items for groups or individuals is valid. And that he's maybe gone a little off, you know, on tangents that aren't as key and elemental to really dismantling systemic racism. With all that being said, I think his basic premise is sound, right? That the way forward for America to build a truly just and equitable society is through actively dismantling racist institutions and enabling proactively anti-racist policies. And so what this episode is going to be about is what does that actually look like in practice? And I'm going to begin with efforts underway by the Biden administration, and then I'll switch to a more micro-level example in New York City that is actually quite complex and shows how difficult overcoming some racist institutions really is in practice. But first up, let's discuss the Biden administration, both in terms of the specific policies they're putting forth and their overarching strategy. Biden has made addressing racial injustice, a central theme of his presidency, and the plans he has put forth so far reflect a true commitment to this cause. Now, however, on the strategic political level, Biden is not going out of his way to emphasize the racial components of his policy. And the reason for that is simple. The more racial components of a policy are emphasized and made salient, to the American public, the less popular they become. The reality is America is still a dominant white majority country. White people in particular don't like to think of 
policy is racialized and they it it, it, it something it triggers something in them about you know unfair advantage or a guilt complex or whatever and so you know why this is is a much you know is a topic for another day and to get into the details but again the, the fact remains is that you, if you take a policy you take the exact same policy and you describe it in a way that has universal kind of egalitarian principles to uplift the American people and if you take that exact same policy and emphasize its racial justice components it will be less popular in that latter framing that Americans like universalist policies and they don't like having the racial components emphasized um, so with that said I think Democrats are wise to pursue policies with a strong racial justice component without emphasizing it right again emphasizing the universality the fact that it's for all Americans to uplift everybody and make a strong society that politically is the way to go now that being said Biden is focusing on key sectors of the economy that have a disproportionate amount of black and brown workers particularly female workers so what what does this look like in practice think about his investments in the American jobs plan and the American families plan in child care and home health care and how it fits this profile right he is proposing to invest hundreds of billions in these sectors to give free child care to all Americans or at least highly subsidized to help people with their home health care and to boost the wages for workers in these sectors and this is key because Biden is directly aiming at improving the conditions for hundreds of thousands of black and brown and mostly female workers who dominate the child care and the home health care sector so it's very smart right child care universal child care is popular universal assistance for home health care is popular those industries and sectors are dominated by black and brown women and also men and so anything to boost that sector and improve the livelihoods of that sector will disproportionately benefit black and brown people in addition the already passed increased child credit payments will disproportionately help black and brown families right you know they are going to be getting up to three hundred dollars a month per kid and in terms of you know percentage of their income in terms of boost to their you know um their propensity to you know provide services and food and utilities for their family this is going to help black and brown people the most again there are plenty of poor white people in america who are also going to be benefited but again we're talking proportionality here now where biden has been even more direct in targeting black and brown communities is with his targeted investments in environmental justice he has pledged that 40 percent of all clean energy spending will go to disadvantaged communities that have suffered environmental racism and again these are mostly black and brown now how will that look will that be subsidies for solar power will it be cleaning up their toxic waste sites will it be increasing green space and parks for these communities it's probably going to be some combination thereof but again strong racial justice component uh, explicit in this policy now of course most of Biden's agenda is yet to pass but he has teed up you know a series of policies that are extremely anti-racist 
and that the beneficiaries will be disproportionately black and brown. And if they pass, it will go a long way to, you know, um, remedying a lot of the historical wrongs. I want to be clear, you can never bring back someone's life. If someone suffered environmental racism and they have, you know, chronic health conditions, you can't make somebody whole again. But at least going forward, he is focusing resources on trying to do right by these communities. Now, just by way of mentioning other Democrats who propose policies like that, I think it's it's good to mention Cory Booker's proposal for baby bonds, right? And so this is really focused on the wealth gap. A lot of people in America focus on the great income gap between whites and black and brown people. But the wealth gap is even much greater than the income gap, right? So the average black family has one-tenth, 10% of the wealth of the average white family, right? So the wealth gap is even much greater than the income gap. Now, under Booker's uh, baby bonds program, every child in America would receive a government bond upon birth um, of $1,000. And then each year, depending on family income, that would be augmented by up to $2,000 with the thinking that for the poorest families, that child, when they turned 18, would have approximately $50,000 in a government bond that they would be able to redeem to help them um, you know, with college, to put a down payment on a home, to start a small business, etc. Now, again, this program would be universal, but by adjusting the government contribution based on household, household wealth and income, it would disproportionately benefit black and brown children, and over time, it would help to close this racial wealth gap. So in summary here, Biden and the Democrats more generally are actively pursuing a smart and effective anti-racist policy agenda that if fully enacted would have dramatic impacts for millions of black and brown families across the country. And they're playing the politics very smart. They're not shying away from the racial justice components when asked when, you know, when they're in the appropriate forum, but they're not headlining them either. They're not beating people over the head with this anti-racist agenda, and they're really emphasizing the universal components. So I think this is all amazing. I hope all of Biden's agenda is passed in the next few months. Again, this, these next six months are probably going to be the most intense legislating sessions in, in U.S. Congress in decades. It's going to be really you know, a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Um, so I just think they're doing outstanding work. And for all of us who worked hard to get Biden and the Democrats in power, especially, again, a big shout to Stacey Abrams to get help us get those two senators uh, in Georgia that gave us the Senate majority. I mean, you know, this is what we get. Elections have consequences. And in this case, they are incredibly positive anti-racist consequences. So after the break, I'll come back with an example from my hometown of New York City that is actually much more complex and much more challenging and does not have an easy answer um, and uh, is definitely will be worth discussing. So more on that after the break. I'm a dread, dread, one I'm on. <laughs> 
Okay, so now on to this New York City example. New York City has a very unique system for accepting students into their top three specialized high schools. So those high schools, for those of you who don't know New York City, are Stuyvesant High School, which is the school I went to, Bronx High School of Science, and Brooklyn Tech. So these are the three top specialized high schools in New York City. They send a large number of students to Ivy League schools. There's a lot of famous alumni that have come through these. These are really the kind of the cream of the crop. They're some of the best high schools in the country, public or private. And the way you get into these high schools is one single exam. So every year, more than 20,000 eighth graders across the city take the exam, and the top scores are then used to you know, offer um, entry uh, into these schools. Typically, Stuyvesant is the one that's the hardest to get into, so you know, that the first top 750 scores get offers to Stuyvesant, followed by um, a, a, a slightly larger amount for Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. Now, no other criteria besides this test is reviewed for admission. So it doesn't matter what your GPA, GPA is. You don't write an entrance essay. You don't have an interview. There's no you know, affirmative action or you know, waiting for your economic or racial status. It is simply one exam ranked from top scores to bottom scores, and the top go get invitations to the schools, and everyone else gets nothing and has to uh, you know, uh, apply to their local school. To put this in context, you know, Stuyvesant would accept less than 800 students a year, typically about 750, and this is in a, a city with tens of thousands of high school students. So it is a very exclusive school, and again, same for Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. Now, some stats here. Acceptance into the specialized high schools for black and Latino students currently stands at 9%. So 9% of the, the um, invitations to attend are sent out to black and Latino students, despite making up 66% of the population of the public schools. So let me repeat that. Black and um, Latino students make 60, up 66%, two-thirds of the population of the public schools, and yet they receive only 9% of the uh, offer letters to go to the top high schools. This year, 2021, Stuyvesant made offers to only eight black students, providing them with approximately 1% of the slots. So this, again, this is New York City one of the blackest cities in the country with, you know, again, tens of thousands of black students. And they, they gave, they made offers to eight, less than double digits. You could count on your two hands, eight black students. Now, these stats, by the way, are not new. When I went to Stuyvesant more than 30 years ago, it was a similar situation with very few black and brown students enrolled. But it actually has gotten worse in the recent decades. Now, Taking a step back here, any system that year after year after year systematically denies opportunity to black and brown students is by definition racist, right? The key here is not the intent. You know, again, I'm sure some of the history of the exam, I would not be surprised if there was some racist intent, 
but we don't know that, right? And it's, it, it is a single exam, and it doesn't matter if the intent was racist or not. It is the outcome that matters, and an outcome that year after year after year disproportionately um, negatively impacts black and brown students is a racist system. Now, over the decades, efforts have been made to provide black and brown students with increased tutoring and test preparation, but it has not produced results. In fact, the stats have only gotten more racist as some of these programs have been um, in place. Now, during this time, also it's important to point out, and this makes this is where the complexity gets more interesting, the number of Asian students admitted to these top specialized high schools has also increased. So when I went back in the 80s, whites were the dominant group in Stuyvesant, followed by Asians, and then there was a, you know, a sprinkling of other ethnicities, black and brown, Latino students. These days, Asians are now the dominant group in, in Stuyvesant, and then followed again by a large number of whites, and again, again, that very small number of black and brown students. So there has been a shift from less white students and more Asian students over the last few decades. This complicates the issue somewhat because any efforts to increase black and brown enrollment are met with cries that this will disadvantage Asian minorities, many of them who are also from poor communities. So again, when it was you're going to take away slots from privileged white people to give more black and brown um, admission, that was an easier sell now with Asians dominating. And again, many of them from poor communities, not all, but many of them. If you're going to do something to, you know, to increase black and brown students at their expense, you know, many Asian communities have gotten uh, pretty up in arms about this. And I want to be clear here. Not all of them. There are plenty of Asians um, that I know and, and, and who have spoken out saying it is a racist outcome. Um, but there are also plenty of Asian families who say, hey, you know, we had to work hard to get in. You know, anyone can do it. We, we used to not be able to get in in these numbers. And now we, we can. You know, we come from poor communities. Don't don't change the test system. Right now, I think we should test change the system again. My view is, is, is simple. A, any system that systematically, year after year, decade after decade, you know, basically shuts the door on black and brown students, again, is by definition racist and should be scrapped. So what is a proposal to replace the test system? The proposal that has gotten the most traction and seems to make the most sense is for the specialized high schools to allow in some percentage of the top performers from every public junior high school in the city, right? So this would be, you know, you take every junior high school in Queens, Staten Island, Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, all the different ethnicities, all the different ethnic groups, and say, we're going to take in a top percentage of those students. And that would, again, be based on, you know, criteria such as GPA, um, essays, etc. However, we would measure the top students at these junior high schools, we would then take a sliver. And in this way, the schools, Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, would become representative of a cross-section of the best students from all neighborhoods across the, the city and would almost by definition certainly represent a much greater racial diversity than they do now. 
Now, again, as you can imagine, and I've already hinted, there are many groups that are opposed to this. And the issue is one of the most contentious in the New York City public school system. I mean, there have been discussions about changing the testing system for decades, and yet it is still exactly in place as it has always been. And again, the numbers for black and brown admission continue to drop. Now, to show you how tricky this situation is, I want to talk about some results of my broaching this idea with three friends of mine who all went to Stuyvesant with me. One of them is Indian, one is black, and one is black and Puerto Rican. Now, I want to be clear here that what I'm about to discuss is, is anecdotal, it's not scientific, and it's certainly not fully representative of all black and brown people who you know went to Stuyvesant or one of these specialized high schools. But it's still illustrative. So I sent them a copy of the proposal that I just mentioned above, which is you know, to, to, to scrap the test completely and just let in the top students from the, the neighborhood junior high schools across the city. And we had a back and forth over email for a number of weeks. And all three of my black and brown friends strongly opposed changing the test format. They had various reasons. One said it would make people view students who got in from lesser school districts as unworthy. And he spoke about how, you know, when he went to top schools for college, he always felt people were looking at him as if it was, you know, he was a product of affirmative action and he always had to prove himself. And that there was something nice about the test just being like, hey, I aced the test. You can't say anything to me. There's no affirmative action here. You know, you can't tell me I'm not deserving. One said that there was something, you know, equalizing about requiring a test for everyone that everyone has access to and that we just got to do a better job of educating black and brown children. Again, I pointed out to him that, you know, they've been doing that for years and years with this test prep and tutoring and it's not working. But, you know, there, there you have it. Now, another one of my friends was adamant that his two children, who he has been grooming for entry into these schools for years, would be disadvantaged. So, you know, it came across, he probably had the most negative comments, and it was hard to parse out whether this was a defensiveness about his own personal self-interest, because he's been grooming his own kids to ace tests and therefore get into Stuyvesant. You know, throughout the whole conversation, again, this was mostly by email, there was also a strong undertone of we're kind of tired of well-meaning white liberals trying to fix racial things. You know, we can take care of ourselves. Now, I want to also be clear that, you know, all three of my friends are highly successful. They're, you know, they're, they're, they have strong careers. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they recognize the racism of the system, but they just were not willing to, to, to say that, you know, this proposal was superior, and they just were kind of in, intent on clinging to the test as the, the, quote, you know, best option. And again, I want to emphasize that I don't think my friends are representative of black and brown people who went to these schools, but the, the, the intensity of their reactions and the, the uniformity in terms of opposition was pretty striking to me. Um, and this goes to show that the politics of these type of issues are not at all straightforward. In fact, they're extremely fraught and comp 
complicated. You know, I was a little taken aback, frankly, at the intensity of the pushback. To me, it's blindingly obvious that the current system is racist and should be changed. But, you know, my friends were incredibly resistant and even questioned whether these efforts were being made in good faith. You know, one of my friends was saying, oh, it's just for rich white parents to try to kick out, you know, Asian kids. And I was saying, no, actually, that's not. This is really to get black and brown people um, in, not to get more white people in. But, you know, he, he wasn't buying it. Again, I think more from a personal self-interest uh, rationale. But, you know, I can't get into his head and I don't want to, you know, take it too far. So, so where does this leave us? The New York City example is obviously very unique and particularly egregious, so I don't want to make too much of it, except to highlight that there are some racist legacies for which there will be no easy fixes. Um, and so with that, uh, we'll take another break here, and I'll come back with the antidote uh, after the break. Take it easy, take it easy. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. Lighten up while you still can. Don't even try to understand. Just find a place to make your stand. Take it easy. Okay, so for the antidote today, I want to just begin by saying I think Anti-racism is a powerful concept that everybody should embrace. I think it's correct to ask more of white people than simply not being racist. That white people have a responsibility to do what they can to undo racist legacies and to lend a hand to black and brown communities that have been impressed for so long in America. And there are myriad ways to do this, from donating money to volunteering your time to enacting changes in your workplace to running for office and doing the policy work yourself. So I want to urge everyone to keep this in the back of your minds because there are many, many ways to help dismantle America's racist legacy and we will all be better off for it. So I think, again, we should all embrace anti-racism and, you know, it will evolve. Our thinking will evolve and, you know, how we act on it will evolve. But just have that in the back of our minds that it's incumbent on us to not just be not racist, but to do proactive work to make America more just, and particularly, again, to lend a hand, not in a kind of just uh, a cheap charity way, but in an opportunity way, and to, to removing structural barriers for black and brown people so that they can take you know, their rightful place in the halls of power and wealth and privilege in America. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Twitter, and Spotify. And if you're enjoying it as well, please rate it. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care.